Well, praise God. Praise God for what he did in their life and what he continues to do through this church community. If you, like you said, if you want more information on that, you saw in the video, uh, there's ways we can still partner with, with that organization here as part of, of Bay City Fellowship. Amazing, amazing opportunity. Well, if you have a Bible, jump to Acts chapter 7. Uh, we are doing a series in the book of Acts. And just so you know kind of where we're going in the future, uh, we're going to be going uh, through book of Acts up until Acts. Advent, and then we're going to do an Advent series starting at the end of November um, through Christmas time, and then we'll jump back into Acts in the uh, spring, and we will continue, we will finish the book of Acts as a church. So if you're ever wondering where we're going next, you can just read the next chapter in Acts. We'll be in chapter 7 this week, chapter 8 the week after that. We'll stop at chapter 12 for, for a little hiatus, and then we'll be back into it. So Acts chapter 7. We are going to be looking at the very first martyr, the very first person who was killed for their faith in Jesus Christ um, through the life of Stephen. We're going to get a bit of a running start at it, so we'll jump to Acts chapter 6, verses 9 through 14, and we'll read a couple select passages and then begin. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse, um, verse 9, says this, Then some who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, which is called, And the Cyrenes and of the Alexandrians and those of Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit for which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon them and seized them and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to to speak against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses had delivered to us. Jump down to chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abram when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred, go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land which you are now living Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even um, a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, uh, even though he had no children. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. Jump down to verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who uh, announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law and delivered by angels and did not keep it. Verse 54, but when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened 
and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they were stoning, as they were sto- and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the faithfulness of Stephen. Thank you for a man that stood for truth in a world um, that did not want to hear the truth. And Lord, I know that right now we are um, more and more in a world that is, um, that is receiving challenges, that in some ways persecution is rising in, in the world that we see. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women that make a courageous witness in whatever environment we are in, that we would speak the truth in love. And by your grace, like Stephen, we wouldn't die vindictive, but we would die forgiving, begging that your glory and your renown, that you would be known to people, even the people that may be persecuting us. So Lord, I pray that we would be the people you need us to be so that we can be a courageous witness for you. And Lord, that's beyond what I can do, what we can do by just hearing a message. So Lord, we're praying, Spirit, would you make us alive? Would you renew our hearts, renew our minds so that we can be your people in this place? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what are the stories that inspire you? What are the stories that are most exciting to you? Uh, This summer, I can tell you about a beach vacation I went on, how we sat on the beach and had uh, beverages and sat there and watched the ocean and enjoyed that time. And as I kind of retell that story, you don't go, oh, you were on, tell it again. You know, like you're not, it doesn't stir you. It doesn't excite you. Like, tell us again. Oh, you were on the sand in Galveston? Yeah, keep on going, Kevin. Like, tell us more about Galveston. There's water there. Yes, there is. Like, it doesn't inspire you. You're not going to go to that movie. You're not going to read that book. There's nothing that stirs within you when you talk about a basic beach vacation. The stories that inspire you, the movies you want to go see, are ones that show heroic qualities. They're movies with impossible circumstances, overwhelming odds, situations that seem unmanageable, unescapable, beyond the comprehension of most. It's movies like Star Wars. It's when you've got this overwhelming enemy, this overwhelming opposition, and this small force that is, that is overwhelmed, outgunned, outmanned. They somehow figure out a way to, to have a victory. Those are the stories that inspire you. It's stories It's stories where the beauty of heroic character stands out in contrast against the darkness of a bleak world. Those are the stories that inspire you. That's what gets you excited. And and that's what we have here in the scripture. We have the story of a man standing brightly against a dark backdrop. You have a man who stands as a diamond in a dark night in a dark sky, who shines brightly. 
And you may not know how diamonds are formed. I did a little research on this. I, I read an article by Smithsonian Magazine, and it says this, diamonds are formed deep within the earth, about 100 miles or so below the surface on the upper mantle. Obviously, in part, um, the part of the earth that's very, very hot, and there's a lot of pressure And the weight of the overlaying rock bears down so that the combination of heat, temperature, and pressure are what are necessary for diamond crystals in the earth to grow. And under this pressure, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 725,000 pounds per square inch and temperatures of of 2,000 to 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. What creates diamonds? Heat, and pressure. What creates beauty from something that's really insignificant? It's the heat and the pressure that allows diamonds to form. And the same is true in your life and in my life. If God wants to spotlight his glory through your life, you know what he's going to bring into your life? Heat and pressure. The trials of life are what, are what form the character of Christ that the world needs to see. And that's what we see in the life of Stephen. The heat of persecution. The pressure of standing before this audience. Those are the things that are combined together that, that show and spotlight what it looks like to have a courageous witness for Christ. And so that's what I want us to be. That's who I want to be. I want to be someone that stands courageously for Christ, that has the character qualities that when the temperature turns up, when the pressure mounts, that I can speak the truth in love to a world that may be antagonistic. And listen, we are in a world that is going, growing increasingly antagonistic towards Christ. According to Pew Research, the Pew Research Center About 74% of the world's population lives in a country where social hostilities involving uh, religion are high. And 64% live in countries where the government restrictions on religion are high. Isn't that fascinating? 74% of Christians live in places where opposition to the faith is high. In America, we have been in an amazingly... um, amazing environment where the pressures, the persecution hasn't risen to levels like they are in other nations in the world. We've been, we've been uh, protected from a lot of those realities. But all you have to do is watch the news or watch culture. You see that the pressure against Christianity is from really believing what they're believing, really speaking the truth from Scripture are increasingly getting high. And Jesus warns his disciples about this and give you a couple verses that demonstrate this. In John chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, I've said these things to you, John chapter 16, verse 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace, but in the world you'll have tribulation. You can have peace in Christ, but in the world you have tribulation. Matthew 5, 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God, he says in the Beatitudes. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So persecution is not um, uh, an elective, it's a required course in the Christian life. 
It's not something you can choose whether or not you want to be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will encounter a level of opposition. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what the author Paul is saying. And that's what we see here in the early church. The persecution, the heat of temperature rising. And so I want to lead you through three movements in this sermon and in this section. And here's what we see. We see a rising movement, the movement of the early church. We see rising heat, increased opposition. And we see a courageous stand, inspiring action. We see increased impact that leads to increased opposition. And we see an inspiration in action. So let's look at it beginning with the rising movement we see that the church has been growing. And if you've been with us on this journey, you've seen that, um, that ever since Jesus died and was resurrected, that the start of the church um, began in this explosive new movement of believers coming to faith. Peter preached a sermon in Acts 2, and, and 5,000 people come to faith in a moment. It's absolutely incredible. Acts chapter 2, verse 47, you see um, several moments in the book of Acts where they're reporting on what's happening. So Acts chapter two, verse 47 says this, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And we see 3,000 people saved at Pentecost. In Acts chapter four, we see another 2,000 people that have come to believe. In Acts chapter six, verse seven, um, what we looked at last week, it says, and the number of God continue, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem And a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. What you see early on is that they are part of a winning team. The gospel's going out, people are getting saved. And listen, everyone wants to be a part of a winning team. Like you want to be part of a winning team. You don't want to be part of a team like my my son's soccer team right now. Um, (laughs) This is my sanctification. And it's not just my son. I've been part of losing soccer teams uh, in, in, my, in my own life. And those, those are tragic environments where you're just watching goal after goal go in. All right, this is not about me. It's about Jesus. Okay, but, but you, you just, you, you, it's hard. It's hard to be part of a losing team. And, and that becomes so deflating, but that's not what's happening. The, 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 what you see now is that the gospel is going forth. People are coming to faith. It is an exciting time to be a Christian. I mean, when you're putting points on the board, when your team is winning, when you got the A on the test, when she says yes to the date, when they say yes to the promotion, like all of those moments when they line up, life's exciting. You're like, God is on my side. I just got a promotion. I got a sale. This is amazing. That is an amazing time in life. But listen, every time you see an increase in success, an increase in impact in the Christian life, you also see something else. You also see an increase in opposition. Increased impact, this rising movement also brings increased opposition. All sunshine makes a desert, for it said. If you only have good things, what ends up happening is that good thing kind of drowns out the best thing. Rick Warren says this, God has a purpose behind every problem. He uses circumstances to develop our character. In fact, he depends more on circumstances to make us like Jesus than he depends on us reading the Bible. He says, if God uses the circumstances of your life 
to make you look more like Jesus. And so if you're asking yourself the question, God, why would you allow this into my life? Why would you allow this trial, this tragedy, this struggle? Why would you allow this? It's because what God is trying to do in your life and in my life is to make us look more like his son. And what God needs to make us look more like his son is not merely um, high upon high, but he brings trial and tribulation to form our character. So you see, first of all, a, a rising movement, an increased impact, but then quickly it turns, and we see this in chapter six, to this increase in opposition. We see this happen in verse, uh, chapter six, verse eight through 15. It says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. <clears throat> but those who belonged to the synagogue of the freeman, the freedmen of the Syrians and the Alexandrians from Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. We looked last week and Stephen um, was a Greek-speaking uh, individual that was helping with the early church. And this group of, of resistance is coming from a Greek-speaking synagogue in the early church. And they start seeing what Stephen is doing, that he's preaching the gospel, and these people move in to start resisting the work of God that's happening in this moment. And they stir up this opposition in the council. It says in verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they brought Stephen before the council. And they even set up false witnesses against Stephen to kind of turn up the temperature on his life. And here's the deal. Whenever you're more effective for the kingdom of God, the opposition turns up. Whenever you're making an impact in the world for Jesus, the the opposition increases. I watched the Last Dance series uh, with about Michael Jordan and, and his uh, Bulls victories. And there's something that came up before he was ever able to like, win championships. There's something that just turned up in his life and that was um, his opposition with the Detroit Pistons. And as he's playing the Detroit Pistons, they had this version that they called the Jordan Rules. And the Jordan Rules were this. If we can take out Michael Jordan we can stop the success of the Bulls. And so Michael Jordan was, one of, was the premier player in the league at that time, but they would foul him brutally. I mean, elbows to the face, they would just pick him hard, trying to knock him down because they knew that if I can make you hurt, I can stop the success of this team. That's what opposition does. And that's what the enemy does in your life and in my life. If I can turn up the temperature on you, I can make you ineffective for the purpose of Christ. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, has an amazing ability to kind of show how the enemy, the spiritual opposition, can work in our lives. And let me just warn you, if you ever read The Screwtape Letters, uh, it's disturbing. Because C.S. Lewis literally put his mind um, basically in the mind of a demon of what it would look like to, to make opposition against you. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, this is twisted. This is dark. This is penetrating. And here's what he says in the, in the book. He says, some ages, some people, some Christians are lukewarm and complacent. And then it is our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Those of us that are complacent, they say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna avoid the tension. I'm gonna avoid the opposition. I'm just gonna kind of go along to get along. The enemy says, you know what, let's just soothe them faster asleep. You know what, you don't need to share your faith with that person. No, you don't really need to believe the gospel in that situation. No, you don't really need to stand for truth in that moment. And, and it's the job of the enemy to say, yes, yes, let's be quiet and ineffective. 
But for those of us that say, no, 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 I wanna, I wanna have a courageous witness. I wanna stand for truth in a culture that is increasingly resistant to faith. Just let, so you know, that resistance will increase. It will not de- decrease. That opposition will increase, not decrease. So what does it look like for us to have a courageous stand? To be men and women that represent Christ in this culture in a way that's courageous, in a way that catches the eye of a watching world. We see it play out in the life of Stephen. And he stands before this court. He stands before these officials that have the authority to control his, his life, his destiny. They were the leaders of, of the Jewish synagogue, the Jewish temple. And as they're standing there that moment before them, these people with false accusation in front of Stephen say, look, he is speaking against Moses, their law, what they believed in, their faith. And he says that God's gonna tear this whole temple down. And then they stand, Stephen, before these leaders, the high priest, and they ask him, Stephen, are these things true? Are you speaking against our Jewish heritage? And in that moment, this young man who was called into office to serve tables. He was, he was commissioned to help people get food, to help those, those widows that weren't able to provide food for themselves. He was commissioned to serve tables. He was like, he was the one that was just setting up chairs. He's like, I'm here to set up chairs, make people have food. And then in this moment, they pull him before this counselor, like, what do you have to say for yourself? And then he begins speaking. And what he does is he traces the story of Jewish history. If you're not familiar with the, with the storyline of the Bible, if you read Acts chapter seven and Stephen's sermon, you get an overview of your Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, what you see first of all um, is a man named Abraham. A man named Abraham who was chosen by God to, to be someone that would bring blessing to the world. Someone that was chosen out, this unique man in a dark environment, said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise you up and through you, I'm gonna bless the entire world. And he raises him up and, and through, through Abraham, you see several generations of patriarchs and then you get to the person of jo- Joseph. And what you see as, as Stephen is giving this history lesson on the Jewish people, he's saying, one, one, first of all this, no, I believe in the same God and the same story that you believe in. But there's a side of history that you are on that is against the work of God. There's a side of history that you're on that's against the work of God. He begins, he goes all the way to the story of Joseph. Joseph, who is that young man who had several older brothers, and there is that moment when he stands before his older brothers, he comes out there and they betrayed him. Verse nine says this way, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And rescued him out of the afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh and the king of Egypt who made him ruler of Egypt. He said, but God was still with him. Even though they were opposing him, God was with him. But that's the key. Even the ones that were supposed to be on the side of God are against the work of God. That's what he's demonstrating. Then verse 23 says, transitions to Moses. Now when Moses was 40 years old, he came into into his heart to visit his brothers And the Jewish people at that moment in time were enslaved in Egypt and Moses came seeking to to, to save them. 
Verse 24, and seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. And he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. And the following day he appeared to them and he saw them fighting. But they rejected Moses, verse 35. The Moses, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who has made you ruler or judge over us? Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside. He transitions over and over and over again saying, hey, God sent you people that were leading you on his mission. But you continue to reject them. See, that's the story of your Bible. All day long, God has reached out to a world saying, I I want to be your God. I want you to walk with me. I want to show you what it looks like to live life and to be a blessing, not only to receive blessing, but to be a blessing. But all day long, what you have done is you've sided yourself against the work of God. And so Stephen, in this moment, in this fear-packed moment, standing before these officials, he says, look, there's a side of history that you are on and a side of history that I am on. I'm standing trying to defend and speak for Jesus Christ. And you are not. And at that moment, the sermon takes a turn In verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hard in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had announced beforehand the coming righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you who received the law as delivered by angels, you did not keep it. He says, here's the deal. You're stiff-necked and hard-hearted. He says, you're responsible for persecuting the prophets of old. And right now you're standing against the work of God. He uses this term called stiff-necked. And and you'll see that all throughout your Old Testament. A stiff-necked means someone that won't turn their head in the direction you're trying to lead it. Um, I, I haven't ridden horses much. Uh, I was more of a city boy, grew up in, in Katy, but like the city section of Katy. But, uh, but I, I remember at one point in time uh, with my wife, we went on this cruise and one of the excursions was we we're going to ride a horse. And they asked me, have you ever ridden a horse before? And so I, I lied. Um, because this was my, like, this is me and this is with my wife and I'm gonna show her how much of a man I am. I, yes, I've totally ridden a horse before, just not true. And they're like, okay, we'll give you this one. And uh, they decided, I think he knew that I was completely lying because he gave me, I think, what was their worst horse. And, uh, and he stuck me on him. He goes, here's the deal. Just make sure that horse doesn't go and eat that plant. That's what he says. That's his one instruction. And just follow this little you know, caravan of, of horse riders. And so like, I get on the horse. I'm sitting there. You know, all the caravan starts going. Hillary starts going. And this horse, I feel like he just took a, took a look back at me and was like, <laughs> and he just went right over to that bush that he said not to go to. And, and I'm like, hey, hey, buddy. Let's, uh, you know, like, like, I don't know what the click is about, but I hear it's something, you know, like, you know, you click and maybe something will happen and like do this. And I'm, I'm like trying to pull him a little bit and uh, it's not happening. And he comes over, he goes, he goes, yeah, he's a little ornery sometimes. And, and he like pulls him, he goes, come here, bud. And he just like rips that horse's head and pulls him along the trail again. And we're kind of going along like, oh, this is it. I'm, I'm a master horseman at this point. And then, and mid- midway through again, he just sees one of those other plants that you know, will kill the horse, but he's like, whatever. And he just pulls 
pulls it and starts going to that same plant again. And, I, and, and the guy looks at me and goes, you sure you've ridden a horse before? And I'm like, all right, we're too far into this at this point. Uh, yes, I completely, but this, this horse, and he pulls him back. And, and by, by a point, he just literally had to like put a little rope around and like lead him, me behind this guy. And it was just absolutely demoralizing and hilarious. But that's a stiff neck. That's a stiff neck. Someone that knows where to go, but says, I'm not gonna go that direction. I'm gonna choose to do what I want to do. And that's the essence of sin. You know, sin isn't like the little things listed in the scripture, although those do include descriptions of sin. But all of those actions, they come from a heart. And that's the language he uses, uncircumcised of heart, meaning a heart that doesn't have the hardness cut away, that's hard against God, that's resistant to God. This is at the end of the day, what I really want is what I want. I don't want God what you want. And as long as what you want, God, aligns with what I want, we're on good terms. But whenever your desires go against what I want, God, I really just want what's right for me not what you want for me. See, that's the essence of a hard heart. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says this, you are distant, you're separate from God because of a hardness in your heart and a hardness in my heart. And what you want in life isn't Jesus to lead your life. You want to run your own life. And there's all different ways that plays out. It plays out in our interactions with people. It plays out in how we spend our money. It plays out on how we, how we treat our spouse, of how we treat our friends or our enemies. Well, at the end of the day, we say is I want what I want and we all have a hard heart and we just are stiff-necked going our own direction and the gospel reveals it to us. This is a problem. You don't want what God wants. You want what you want and then you'll paint a God version of it on top of it. That's what our world does. That's what... Christians do, sadly. And these religious leaders are saying, I don't want to hear what you're saying. See, when you hear the gospel, it's this simple story. You are separate from God because you choose to live your own dream, your own glory, not God's. You choose to live your own way, not God's way. But God sent Jesus Christ to die in your place for your sins, to bring you in right relationship with God. That's the truth. And to change your heart from the inside out so that you'll love the things that God loves and then you'll do the things that God is calling you to do. See, that's the gospel. And the reason it's so offensive is because it reveals in every one of our hearts those areas where we're resistant to God. See, coming to the gospel is like going to the dentist. There's a reason you don't want to go to the dentist. It's because it's demoralizing. They lay you in the chair. They lean you back so you have nothing, no control. And then they put a bib around your neck. Which is, which is you're like, why, why do I need the bib? Like, I know how to brush a tooth or two, right? You know, I know what I'm doing. And they lay you back down there and then they get that weapon, Right? And it doesn't matter how good you are at brushing your teeth. It doesn't matter how good you are at flossing your teeth. There will be a moment when you're laying there when that, that wonderful woman or man stands above your face and they get there and they just start like scraping on you. 
and they're like, oh, this is, and, and they don't just, it's not like they clean it off over here. They wipe it on your chest. Like, <laughs> you've been there? Like they scrape and here's the crud on your tooth and then they're just wiping it on you and they keep on talking to you like, hey, so how's it going today? And they're, like, ah, and they're just like, yeah, yeah, that's great. And they keep on scraping all the film, all the dirt, all the issues within you and they wipe it on you. So they're, you're like, yeah. And they ask you to be, hey, do you brush your teeth? Do you floss? Oh, totally, I'm a great brusher of teeth. I'm, I'm, I'm a veteran flosser. And they're just like, oh yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that how that." And they wipe on your chest and, and you are completely demoralized because what you realize in that moment is all of your failures are laid bare for everyone to see. And that's what the gospel does for every one of our lives. We're sinners by action or inaction. We are hard-hearted. We choose to live our own life, run our own way. And that's why the gospel says, yes, everyone like sheep has gone astray. Everyone has gone their own way. But Jesus died to pay it all. No one comes to Jesus on their feet. Everyone comes on their knees saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. And Stephen in this moment lays that in front of them saying, you are running against God. You're hard-hearted, stiff-necked, Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him and a witness laid down their garments at a young man named, named Saul and they stoned him to death. Verse 16, falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against him. That is beauty and tragedy and perfect vision. Beauty, a a courageous stand for Christ. Tragedy, the killing of that man. Beauty, a man that embodied all the characteristics that we would value. One that stood for truth that spoke the truth and died forgiving. You know why the early church made such a dramatic impact in the first several hundred years? It's because those who loved Jesus had this beautiful intermingling of courage, self-sacrifice, and love. This amazing combination of a courageous stand, but a stand that didn't like shout out at people and shout them down for not agreeing with you. He was a man who died forgiving. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers who was defending the Christian belief in their pagan world of Rome said this. He says, we're not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us the more, the more you kill us, the more we are. 
The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who endure pain and death so long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes that you charge against us. And you frustrate your purpose because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals. And when they find out why, they find out, they join us. I've always heard that text, the seed of the martyrs, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, but I didn't, hadn't read the full thing. And when you read his apology, what he's saying is this, look, you're killing us and we're growing. Why? It's because the Christians in the early church were modeling all the virtues that you value. And Rome had four cardinal virtues, major virtues that they believed were the highest ideal. There was uh, prudentia, um, uh, justice, there's prudence, justice, self-control, and courage. Prudence, that's wisdom in making the right decisions. Justice, that's being a just person. Temperance, it's a self-control. And courage, that means the ability to stand in the midst of overwhelming opposition. He says, you, these Christians modeled that. And you're wondering why everyone else is joining us is because we model the characteristics, the courage that you long to see in your people. And every now and then, every now and then Christians model this same courage in the midst of overwhelming opposition. In 2015, Several Christians were killed in Libya. And one of the brothers of one of the men that was killed was a man named Bashir Kamel. And he went on television and thanked these so-called Islamic State terrorists for not editing the last words of his brother and the other Egyptian men that they had beheaded at the beach of Libya. His brother said, Lord Jesus Christ were the last words that his brother spoke in Coptic. And Bashir Kamel went on to say, we are proud to have this number of people from our village who have become martyrs, he said, after his brother's murder. Since the Roman era, Christians have been martyrs and have learned to handle everything that comes our way. This only makes us stronger in our faith because the Bible told us to love our enemies and bless those who curse us. He further explained that his mother was prepared to welcome any of the men involved in her son's beheading into her house. If one of them were to visit her, she would ask God to open their eyes because he was the reason her son entered the kingdom of heaven. As he ended his statement in that story, he says, on television, he says, Dear God, please open their eyes to be saved and to quit their ignorance and the wrong teachings they were taught. Stephen died forgiving. Why? Because Jesus died forgiving. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen died forgiving. And Christians, Christians, that make an amazing impact in this world, that get the world to stop and stare, a courageous witness, aren't ones that stand vindictive at what's being done to us. 
they stand with open arms of love, saying, I wish you would know the Jesus that I know. I wish you would be part of this new family. I wish you would come to the knowledge of truth because Jesus' arms are open to you. This is a hard call, but the Christians that live out this shine like diamonds in a dark world. I want to give you four implications. The first is this from, from this passage. Number one, don't go looking for persecution. <laughs> it's not our responsibility to be, uh, have Christian BO. Like, that's not the goal. Don't be needlessly offensive. The gospel is offensive enough. So don't go looking for persecution. Number two, faithfulness to God doesn't mean acceptance from the world. That's just true. Faithfulness to God doesn't mean acceptance to the world. Number three, Jesus is in control even when our circumstances feel out of control. What's fascinating about studying this is that Peter, not a few chapters earlier, preaches and thousands of people come to faith. Peter preaches a pretty good sermon and he loses his life. Which one did God honor? Both. Both. And he says, in this moment when he's about to die, Lord Jesus, I see you coming on the clouds. Receive my spirit. And number four, our faithfulness inspires the faithfulness of others. In Acts chapter eight, you see the church beginning to spread even more. In verse four, it says, those who were, those who were persecuted were scattered for the preaching of the word. See, there's two ways to create diamonds. One way is to have something deep in the earth's surface that you've got to go dig and find under that pressure and that heat. But there's actually a second way diamonds are formed. One article that I read, either you go deep into the earth's surface, but there's a different process. It gets there, diamonds are brought to the surface through pipes known as kimberlite. Kimberlite comes when a volcanic eruption shoots them to the surface. And in that process of heat and pressure and shooting them to the surface at 20 to 30 miles per hour, it makes diamonds in the process. That's what God does in this moment in the life of Stephen. The heat and pressure shoot the Christians out into a dark world to shine like the stars. And that's what Paul says that you would be men and women that shine like stars, diamonds of the character of Christ to a world that may not want us, but when they see the character lived out, like Christ calls us to live it out, they stop and stare. And they say, I want what you have. And we stand like every great saint of old we don't point to ourselves look at what I've done we say like Jim Elliot we're a bunch of nobodies telling everybody 
about somebody who will save anybody. Amen? So what's our response this morning? Uh, we, we have a time of prayer to end every one of our services. And, and so there's any number of things that, that God might be working on your heart on. For some of you, you've come here and, and you are far from Jesus Christ. You're resistant in your heart. You've never put your faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And so as our prayer team comes forward, we want you to come forward as our, in response to say, I, I believe in Jesus. I wanna receive forgiveness of sins and I would like to be that type of man or woman that follows Jesus in the hardest circumstances. For others of you, it may be physical healing or emotional healing or spiritual healing. You felt distant from the, from the Lord for any number of reasons or you felt um, trapped and we wanna pray for you. We kind of wanna come alongside you to be restored in relationship with your heavenly father through Jesus Christ. And we believe that God can heal any number of things that might be going on in your life. And so Lord, come forward and we'll pray alongside you. For others of you, um, as we've been looking at Stephen in this morning, you have felt under pressure personally to live out your faith. And for some of us, we felt beat down in our culture. I encourage you to come forward. We wanna pray that God encourages you, that God fortifies your faith. And as the community of believers stand together, we will lift your arms up when you feel weary so you can continue to run the life of faith even when it feels like you're running alone. You're not. Jesus is watching and we're here beside you. So come forward, respond in faith. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you died in our place for our sins, that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, thank you that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. And Jesus, you died forgiving. And Lord, your servant Stephen died forgiving. And Lord, Christians throughout the ages have stood in the face of opposition and said, I, my love for Jesus something I'm not going to back away from. And I wish, I wish, I wish you would know Jesus too. Lord, I pray that we would be Christians with that courageous witness in a world that's growing increasingly opposed to that witness. You would fill us with your love so that we could speak your word. In your name we pray. Amen.